Hi, welcome to another episode of the Get Ready with Tony Stewart podcast. Today, I am pleased to welcome David Paul, a founding member of Alert Insurance Research. Uh, David, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. How about yourself? Good, good. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Uh, Looking forward to our discussion today. Uh, Before we get started, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dave. Uh, David has been with Alert Research since 1999 and is a founding member. Uh, David's responsible for building out the company's life, property casualty, health, and international analytical models and services. David co-directs the company's research staff, manages internal IT initiatives, and product development, pens a number of the firm's insurance industry research pieces, and is actively engaged in client service and development. David has over 25 years of experience in insurance research, financial analysis, and is active in the insurance industry as an author and public speaker. Uh, David, uh, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what Alert Research is? So Alert Research, as you indicated, uh, is a firm that um, analyzes the financial strength of insurance companies. Um, The firm uh, is owned by myself and my two partners uh, who have worked together for approximately 30 years doing this type of work, analyzing the financial strength of insurance companies. We actually uh, together worked for a firm that was a spinoff of Conning & Company, which is also a well-known Hartford-based research firm. So we're kind of uh, part of that Hartford, Connecticut uh, tradition of insurance research. We've had our company for 20 years now and uh, have been able to grow it uh, kind of exponentially uh, since we started. Well, that's exciting. And I know that um, Alert Research takes a very unique way of looking at insurance companies in a very um, more advanced modeling uh, of insurance companies. And, and we'll definitely get into that. Uh, before we do, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in this end of the business? Yeah, like I said, I mean, uh, so I'm somewhat unique, I think, in that I've, I've kind of done this my whole career. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I started, uh, like I said, about 30 years ago. I, I did have a couple of jobs beforehand. I worked as a technical writer. Um, I also, um, I did some work uh, in the workers' comp field um, for loss control, but really only for two or three years. And then I was invited uh, to join uh, the spinoff of Conning & Company, where I learned the business and kind of have been there since. So uh, again, um, I've had the good fortune of, of working with uh, my two partners for almost my whole career and uh, this, the second good fortune of, uh, of owning our own business for the last 20. Well, that's great. Uh... You know, so let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about what Alert Research is. Uh, the, I think the first question is, what uh, is the Alert way, uh, the core philosophy of your firm? Yeah, that's a great question, and certainly, um, you know, and we'll talk, I guess, at the end about uh, how to get more information about us. But certainly, on our website, if you look under the introductory material, you can see our conversation about the Alert way. The alert way really is uh, an expression of our philosophical um, uh, approach to analyzing insurance companies. It's kind of a three-tenant approach or a a three-legged stool, we like to say. Um, The first leg of that is is that alert uh, does all of its analytical work on insurance companies at the statutory or legal entity level. 
and as we'll, I think, talk a little bit later about, this is, is different from how uh, rating agencies tend to approach uh, the analysis of life insurance companies. So our work is what we call bottom, bottom up. That means that we are doing, concentrating our analytical work uh, at the level uh, of the financials of the company that's on the declarations page of a policy as opposed to kind of analyzing a parent and, uh, and depending on the implicit support of that parent to support uh, an underlying subsidiary if it gets into financial trouble. So I think that's very important, bottom up approach versus, versus top down. Um, the second leg is really that we believe that uh, the analysis should be ongoing in as real time as possible. Uh, so we update our models on a quarterly basis, which is obviously the best we can get uh, using statutory and gap data. Um, we believe that no one can predict the future. Lots of things can go on uh, with the capital markets, with individual companies, changes in management, changes in strategies, uh, uh, catastrophe events, et cetera, et cetera, that no one can predict. So we feel that the best you can do as a credit analyst is to try to get the financials in as real time as possible, uh, update the modeling and let your clients know. So um, that is also somewhat different from the way rating agencies, I think, approach uh, their analysis. And, and lastly, we think uh, as good risk management type thinkers that um, any analysis should, should be measurable and quantifiable. And we have designed, as we may talk about later, a scoring system as opposed to a rating system, which allows a much more exact uh, comparison of companies. Well, that's great. And I think that leads into uh, the natural next question, and you've already partially answered uh, this is, you know, what really makes Alert different from other rating services? You touched on um, the scoring system, the bottom-up approach. And, and the thing that I think I'm most curious about with that is, you know, when AMBEST or Standard & Poor's assigns a financial strength rating, are they really basing it that much on the parent company? Um, you know, our view and our long experience, and, and I'd like to say up front that we view the rating agencies as peers and not competitors. We do something somewhat differently. Um, they're our colleagues. We know them well. We get their work. So by no means is this a beat-up session on the rating agencies. We uh, really appreciate what they do. But we do believe we have a different approach, and, and, um, and it's our experience that uh, the ratings of insurance companies are generally, we believe, based on the implicit support of a parent organization. And maybe to give an example of this, um, you know, I'll use someone like AIG, which is a well-known uh, holding company of insurance uh, subsidiaries, uh, both on the life and the property casualty side. What you'll tend to find is that the ratings underneath, the ratings for all these subsidiaries tend to be the same. And that's because we believe the rating agencies do go in and they, they get a sense for what the financial uh, viability of the parent is. Um, you know, they obviously set senior debt uh, and often notch the insurance ratings to what that senior debt is, usually two or three pegs above that. Um, and so if, if you look at the subsidiaries, say the life subsidiaries of someone like an, an AIG, you'll find that they all generally will have the same ratings. Um, we take a different approach. Again, as I said, we are really going in and looking at each one of those individual insurance subsidiaries that write the policies that uh, a producer's um, clients will have exposure to or will write 
my business with, we're analyzing those almost as if they're standalone companies. And then at kind of the back end of our analysis, we roll in who the parent is and, and what the, the ratings are that support that. So we, we just take a different approach to it. We say they take a top-down approach. Uh, we take a bottom-up approach. As opposed to the other kind of two legs of our alert way, uh, rating agencies will tend to have an annual uh, conversation with an insurer um, and kind of have to sit down with the management and go through everything. Uh, and I'm not saying the rating agencies aren't looking at financials throughout the year, but the ratings tend to have this kind of one-time event um, uh, aspect, if you will. And that's not bad. It's, it's the way they do it. Um, and certainly if important events happen throughout the year, we can see downgrades and upgrades happen at any time during the year. Um, but we, by the nature of the way we do things, we're, we're kind of proactively uh, modeling these companies every quarter, regardless of the, if there's any event. So we think that's very important. And as I said before, the idea of having a score versus a rating allows us to have a much targeted approach towards uh, the financial viability of a company versus its peers. You know, we're really looking at the relative financial strength uh, of one company versus another uh, against the benchmark. I would say a fourth point outside of the alert way, if you will, mm -hmm. that our model was really set up for us to act as a due diligence staff for all types of organizations. Alert kind of made its name in the financial institution space. So we today work with probably 95% of the large and medium-sized banks and, and broker-dealers uh, involved in the distribution of, insur of, in, of insurance policies. Um, and they have hired us kind of to act as their outsourced due diligence staff. They, of course, have people in-house that do some of this work, but they, they feel that they can hire our staff and, and we have the long expertise and, and uh, obviously they don't have to pay, uh, you know, our health care and all of that. Mm -hmm. so, um, so we really are very hands-on. We have a very different service approach, I think, than the rating agencies have. Um, and, you know, and it's not just financial institutions anymore. We're working with a lot of independent brokers, uh, whether that's BGAs or the retail folks themselves. And we're available to get on calls with clients. Uh, you know, we do sit on due diligence committees. We do all of this type of stuff. And again, the rating agencies just really aren't set up um, uh, to offer that type of service. Well, definitely. And, and I think that's important to note. And I think it leads to the obvious conclusion that, you need to consider many different sources when evaluating an insurance company that it's, you know, not just one rating service per se, because they each rating service does have their own approach and that alert just provides another facet or way to look at an insurance company. Does that follow for you? Um, you know, I think it does. Um, you know, I would agree with that. Uh, Again, I think folks are using us for a very specific reason. Uh, I would say that every single one of our clients uh, is looking at ratings. There's no doubt ratings are still very important, certainly in the financial institution space. Uh, you know, you have a, a Comdex score and something like the independent uh, brokerage market that is still looked at. And I think people are just looking for some help to go beyond ratings, a Comdex, of course, being an expression also of ratings, looking for a way to get under the ratings, if you will, to see what's kind of going on behind the ratings. And again, because Alert is doing this work on an ongoing basis, we're able to pick up trends kind of before rating events happen. So I think people are using us for that reason, kind of starting with the ratings and then having us underneath, um, you know, to provide this extra layer of expertise and insight into what's going on with the insurers. And again, I can't stress enough, 
this fourth element I talked about earlier that we're also available um, to communicate with uh, interested parties about this as they're kind of outsourced due diligence experts. So if they need to get people on the phone with uh, you know someone who's buying a large insurance policy or their trusted advisors, lawyers, accountants, et cetera, you know, we do a lot of that work. So um, that's nice for folks to have in their back pocket as well. Well, I think so. And it, it's, it's the ability to go deeper that, you know, I think is what separates alert and that alert is a little more dynamic and real time. Um, and, and I think we see that a lot uh, across many areas, especially um, I'm a real sports fan. I don't know if you're a sports fan, but in sports, you know, it's the advanced analytics. Uh, do you follow baseball? Uh, I do, uh, not uh, at the same level of a, of a couple of my partners who are huge Red Sox fans, but yeah, <laughs> I'm aware of uh, small ball and all that uh, uh, stuff going on with analytics for sure. Yeah, and, and I think this is a similar trend is that, you know, baseball teams, for example, with pitching have gotten away from just looking at the earned run average. And there's all these advanced statistics that can really model out much more is that it's not discarding the RA as an important factor in evaluating pitchers' effectiveness, but they can take a look at many more facets using advanced analytical points. And it sounds like that's a little bit uh, similar to what Alert does, is that you go beyond using advanced and analytical scenarios and analysis. Yeah, I mean... Uh it's an interesting analogy. I think that, again, we're credit analysts. Credit analysts uh, are kind of the same across the board, right? I mean, our peers at, at uh, you know, Moody's and S&P and AMBES, Fitch, et cetera, we'll, we'll all be looking at very similar financials. Um, you know, analytics, advanced analytics is obviously a, a huge issue now, uh, kind of a, almost a revolution, if you will, and we're seeing it definitely have an impact on the underwriting and pricing and distribution strategies of insurers. But in terms of our kind of day-to-day -day analytics, we still depend on public information, uh, whether that's statutory information for the individual insurers, whether that's gap information for the publicly traded parents, um, you know, we're certainly tracking all the news as anyone would do, and we're getting the same stuff that other people get, et cetera. So uh, it's really hard to get you know, and listen, a lot of the insurers that we're analyzing are also clients of ours, especially in the life world. Um, mm -hmm. They can share with us information, but in, in an era of full disclosure, they have to be very careful, especially if they're public, about what they can share with us and, and can't share with others. So, um, you know, anyone, a lot of us are getting the same information, right? And for us, it's really about the methodology, about how we kind of do it. Again, you use a sports analogy, I'll use one as well from football, but blocking and tackling, right? We are going out and gathering the information and blocking and tackling and, and, and modeling these companies on a quarterly basis. I mean, we're modeling the financial results for about 1,500 property casualty, unique insurers, about 750 life and probably close to 500 health insurers. So we're doing a lot of, we're doing a lot of analytics that way. But a lot of it's blocking and tackling. And, you know, 90% of those carriers are kind of going to be all right every quarter, quarter after quarter. Our mm -hmm. goal is to kind of screen that universe and find those ones that are outliers that are starting to deteriorate so that we can communicate that with our clients and they can take, uh, they can be proactive about decisions they're going to make about uh, either business they've written or decisions about continuing to write business with carriers that might be facing some financial issues. 
Well, that, that, that's so interesting. And, and I think it adds such a different facet uh, to insurance company analysis. Um, so I think that leads to, you know, a good question of uh, what should an insurance agent or broker know about making good usage of insurance company financial strength analysis, either with a traditional rating service company and or using it in combination with the alert research service? No, I think that's a great question too. We, we obviously work with a lot of producers and I think in the traditionally producers have depended largely on ratings, whether individual ratings or again in the independent world, a, a Comdex score, which is an aggregation of ratings. Uh, it's certainly, and I, and I don't mean this to be disparaging, it's certainly an easy approach, right? We can't expect every sales a salesman uh, or marketer to be an expert in analyzing the financial strength of insurance companies. Um, so uh, I don't fault anyone for doing that. And then they're really depending on the expertise of these rating agencies as they depend on the expertise of Alert. Um, I think one of the things that, that we've brought to the table is the ability to kind of go, again, this concept of going beyond just providing a letter rating. Um, to having a much more exact approach through a scoring methodology and also having the ability to call on someone who can ar help them articulate that. Now, that said, we are believers at Alert that everyone, anyone can become a credit analyst. Now, obviously, we've been at it 30 years, so we're good at it, uh, but we've developed a model, um, and the Alert model, our Alert uh, analysis, which is at the core of what we do, is a two-page document consisting of a scorecard, which provides the alert score, and the second page would be uh, a page that has 45 or so key uh, financial metrics or analytics that go into deriving the score, and those are distributed across four tiers of risk that have to do with, with the investment, uh, investment experience of a company, have the operating experience, and the last two tiers have to do with the parent organization and the ratings, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's all kind of laid out there for you. And we have training tools and we are happy to uh, train anyone who wants to learn how to read and alert analysis to be able to do so. And I personally believe, and again, I've never been a frontline producer, so uh, I can be faulted for this opinion, but I do believe that uh, taking some time to understand the basic metrics in an insurance analysis uh, makes you more professional. I think that shows up in your interaction with uh, your clients, and especially if you're dealing in the advanced market, uh, which you're obviously familiar with. You're dealing with high net worth individuals who are buying large uh, life cases or large annuities, et cetera. You're dealing with uh, institutional business where you're selling you know, buy, uh, buy, sell, or you know other kind of uh, key man products, et cetera. The ability to kind of come in and say, hey, you know, these are the ratings of the companies, but, uh, you know, based on our work kind of going below that, this is kind of what we're seeing. So I, I do think it helps, um, again, ultimately in your professionalism and in, in the way you kind of present yourself before folks. Um, I think the good, the very good brokers I've worked with or producers I've worked with have had a sense that uh, if they've been in the business long enough, they have some scars on their body. They've seen some insurers get into trouble and they know what that means. So they're much more sensitive to the fact that this can happen. It doesn't happen often, as we know, thankfully, in the life and the annuity world, probably more often in the PC and health world. Uh, but it can happen. And, um, you know, the ability to just be proactive about knowing what signs to look for, I think, are, are very helpful. We also like to point out alert that 
uh, our approach to our work is not binary in that we're not, we don't exist just to say a company is either solvent or insolvent, right? Mm-hmm. We like to say there are shades of gray. So when a company, an insurance company starts to get into some financial distress, uh, it may not go out of business, but a lot of things can happen uh, when a company gets into some financial distress. And that can include changes in management, changes in strategy, the sales of blocks of business or businesses in whole. It, it may mean that you need more capital or surplus in the company, that you get reinsurance deals happening, et cetera. And, this, and another thing that can, you know, certainly runoff is another option. The company doesn't become solvent, but it goes into runoff or sells a block of business into runoff. And the service for that business tends to be bad when you're in runoff, right? There's no incentive to, to service the business well because you're not writing any going forward business. So there are a lot of things that can happen uh, to an insurance company outside of insolvency that can really impact your client. So it's important for folks to know not just, you know, folks may say, oh, very few companies go out of business, so why even bother? It's really not just about that. It's about knowing what companies are getting into financial distress and what actions can happen when that happens, you know, what other actions outside of insolvency can occur when that happens. And again, that's all part of being professional and understanding, you know, when you're writing uh, policies, you're you're essentially writing a promise and you you want that promise to pay off. And if there's any indication that it may not do so, or it may, there may be some stumbling blocks along the way, it's great to know uh, how to, how to figure that out. Well, and I think that's a super, super important point is, uh, being able to determine you know more where the yellow light is rather than the red light and I, I know that I've seen that in the life insurance field recently uh, for example Tia Kreft cutting off their life insurance business and what impact that will have on their existing policyholders Vanguard spinning off their no load annuity business uh, the long-term care insurance companies, uh, for the most part, getting out of the business um, and transferring their business to runoff blocks. I'm more on the life health side, so I have limited knowledge of the PNC side. But however, I, I know for those of us in the life and health side, we're seeing it and limiting it every day. And I think it, it is those things that are going to have a long-term impact on clients. You bring up a very good point. And it's one of the things that we smile about at Alert, having been here for so many years. One of the criticisms kind of early in our career was, well, you guys take a real conservative approach. You're going in and you're analyzing these companies, again, at the statutory entity level. And, you know, why bother going in and and analyzing, you know, MetLife Investors USA, they're owned by MetLife Inc., one of the largest companies, uh, life companies in the United States. And of course, the parent's going to support this company if it needs uh, additional surplus or, or financial support. And we've always said that that's likely true, that these companies, obviously, the holding companies have reputation risk issues. So they're not prone to want to blow up a company that they own uh, because who's going to write business with them after that? Um, so that's true. But what we've always pointed out is uh, you never know what the future is going to hold, as I said before. And outside of insolvency, which, again, is very rare, what we do see a lot of are companies spinning off blocks of business, right? From well-branded mm-hmm. companies spinning off their retail operations or long-term care or this or that. And of course, if you're just following ratings and the rating agencies are largely basing their ratings on the implicit support of a parent, implicit being the operative word here, when there's a spinoff, 
uh, to a either an IPO or to a lesser rated parent, the ratings are going to come down overnight, even though the financials of that insurer that you may have exposure to on a statutory entity or deck page level haven't mm -hmm. changed at all overnight. There's, there's been no change in the financials of the company. The balance sheet is the same as it was the night before, et cetera. So you look at over the last decade, you look at someone like Sun Life, you mm -hmm. look at a Hartford, you look at Aviva, you look at ING becoming Voya, becoming spinoff of retail operations. Uh, you look at a MetLife and a Bright House. Um, you look at AXA uh, recently spinning off um, their U.S. business, retail business in an IPO. Um, you know, you mentioned TIA Craft essentially getting out of life business, which I understand was a small part of their overall business, but it, it's still indicative of trends we're seeing in this industry where Insurers, because I think of the experience over the last 10 years and, and the, certainly the blow they took back in 2008 and 2009, have become much more risk averse, especially if you're public. You know, you like to keep the group business, the, the 401k retirement type business or the group business where um, the mortality and the morbidity is very well known or some of this business is fee business. Um, that's very nice to have. So we, we have seen insurers getting much more conservative, cutting back on the types of products they're offering in terms of uh, the attractiveness of those products, or in the case of some of the names I just mentioned, selling off those those businesses wholesale, whether to another insurer, or in the case of several of them, into runoff organizations. So I'm not saying you can't trust the brands, but we've seen, I mentioned, I don't know, a handful right there, six or seven, very well, very large, well-branded companies that just overnight, and I'm, it doesn't happen overnight, of course, but sure. we read about it the next day to, to decide that they just want to be out of that business, spin the business off. And if you're holding a policy from Hartford or Sun or Voya or whoever it is, um, you know, the ratings likely are going to come down on those overnight. And it's honestly uh, where you hold your policy, where you have your legal exposure may not have changed at all. Our work shows that it hasn't changed at all because our alert score is the same um, from one night to the next when that event happened. But the ratings, if you're just depending on ratings, the ratings can come down and cause a panic or, of course, the Comdex will come down as well. And folks will say, oh, my God, what's happened? Well, it, it may not be a big event. It really just depends on the underlying financial strength of the company that you have written your policy with. That's great. And, and that was one of the things that we were going to talk about is financial trends. And I... I think you, um, you know, have already gotten well into that, is uh, what other financial trends are you seeing going forward for the insurance industry? Well, you know, listen, the, the last decade has seen uh, a protracted, historically protracted low interest rate environment. And insurers, I, I know, as you know, uh, really depend on on this investment spread, you know, between obviously the, what the promises they make in their products and what they can they make on their investments, they depend on that spread for the profitability of most, you know, most of their products, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. So in a protracted low interest rate environment, uh, the predicted profits just are not there. And so we have definitely seen that have an impact on insurers. I call it uh, a cumulative trauma as opposed mm -hmm. to blunt trauma. If, if 2008 and 2009, we saw some real blunt trauma to this industry as well as others, uh, a low protracted interest rate really creates cumulative trauma over time. And we've seen that show up and we have a composite score and alert composite score. And we've seen that score drift well below its historical average over the last, uh, you know, probably five, six, seven years without any major recession or capital market 
implosion. And it really is just because of this, this inability to make the, the spreads that they would hope that they would have made, especially on, on products they wrote a long time ago. Um, because of this, and, and I did mention this before, because of um, the experience in 2008 and 2009 with certain products that quite honestly were mispriced, long-term care being one of them, even going back before that period, um, and that's well-documented uh, why that's occurred, but certainly variable annuities with embedded secondary guarantees that were very rich, um, probably not with insurers not anticipating we'd have the meltdown we had uh, in that period 10 years ago. Um, you know, they, they took some hefty losses on, on that business. Uh, it, was, it was frightening for them. I think it was one of the things that drove some of the companies I mentioned before out of the variable business, Hartford being a perfect example of one of the largest variable annuity writers. We're sitting in the Hartford area, and it's sad to see, but they had a huge complex over in Simsbury, Connecticut, that essentially has been torn down and turned into condos now. It's really eye-opening what can happen to this industry in 10 years. You know, if you had told me 10 years ago that complex wouldn't be there and Hartford would be out of the variable business and really the retail business uh, for life and annuities, I, I would have said that that's crazy. But it, these things do occur. So we have certainly seen um, in terms of financial trends that occur. We've seen insurers become much more conservative, as I mentioned before, uh, cutting back on, on, all, on all sorts of products, if you will. Um, the fact of the matter is so many um, variable products were written, uh, you know, and have continued to be written, but were written before 10 years ago that are still in force that the movement of equity markets still definitely has an impact on the financial of this industry. We can see it almost quarter to quarter. Uh, in the fourth quarter of 2012, obviously, we had a, a quite a substantial downdraft in the, uh, the market performance, global equity market performance. And we saw that have an impact on insurers. It has an impact on the fees they get um, for the variable business they write. It has an impact on the, the cost of the uh, uh, of some of the derivatives they buy uh, to protect themselves, uh, to protect some of their guarantees, et cetera. So certainly the, the movement in equity markets is something that we continue to watch and continues to have an impact on the industry. Uh, you mentioned long-term care business. That's an, obviously another financial trend um, that we've seen, you know, these insurers, uh, I guess, thankfully for them, being able to adjust pricing, um, you know, that's not fixed pricing, they can adjust that going forward. And they've essentially done that in, in very, uh, you know, in, in large ways. Um, so that's certainly a trend we're seeing in the industry with long-term care. Obviously, the introduction of hybrid products has been, I think, wonderful for the industry. I'm a big believer in long-term care. I think it's a very important product. Um, but it is hard to buy a product when you don't know what the cost is going to be. And certainly, if someone can change the premium uh, every year, you're kind of going in blind. Um, but some of these hy hybrid products are nice because, uh, you know, the, the price can't change on you. You kind of know what, what's, what's going on going in. So I would say um, that's a big financial trend as well. Um, you know, I talked about insurers becoming more conservative. We've certainly seen, we have not seen the type of premium growth that you'd expect to see uh, in a 10-year, essentially, bull market. I know the economy hasn't boomed that whole time, but it's certainly gotten stronger over the last several years. And I think that really speaks to the fact that while there's now discretionary income in the pockets of, of consumers, uh, the products uh, are not there the way they used to be in terms of attractiveness. I don't know if you'd agree with me on that or not, but... Um, I think that has put some pressure on the top line uh, of the industry, certainly. Um, but all that said, I would say that um, the earnings have been decent, even though the top line growth has been, been uh, 
been difficult. The earnings have been decent for the industry, really, in I would say five of the last six years. And you can see that quarter to quarter in our work. I think part of that has to do with the fact that, uh, ironically, under statutory accounting, when you're not writing a lot of business, you don't have what we call surplus or earnings strain. Uh, and you can actually show some good earnings. Of course, that can't go on forever because likely you have some fixed costs that you're going to need to cover. Um, so the earnings have been decent. And, and quite honestly, the capitalization for the industry, which is extremely important to every credit analyst, what the surplus level is in the industry on an on a, on a on absolute and risk-adjusted basis, uh, has really been uh, decent and continues to be decent. So there, there is that cushion that uh, the cushion of surplus, the difference between assets and liabilities, that is still decent for the industry. So we always like to say surplus is important because that'll, that's the cushion that allows you to take the inevitable punch, whether that comes, uh, the, blow, the stomach or the body blow comes from the investment side of the balance sheet in a, in a capital market downturn, or whether you've mispriced product and it comes from the liability side where you have to boost reserves. You have that surplus in your company to uh, essentially uh, live to trade another day, if you will. <laughs> well, you, you hit on so many great points there, and I, I think points where we could have another three or four podcasts <laughs> to get into uh, the viability of hybrid products and uh, so many other uh, issues there and surplus and company spinoff and everything else. Um, one of the big things I've always been curious about and why I was really interested to talk to you uh, on the podcast is about, you know, icebergs ahead for the industry. One of the things that I know a little about, just enough to be dangerous, are the potential impact of something like collateral, collateralized loan obligations, CLOs. You know, are they the new CDOs for insurance companies? Are there other icebergs out there? Uh, on insurance companies' balance sheets? No, that's a great question. And, um, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, we, we, if you look back 10 years ago, the problems, I mean, there were obviously a lot of issues, but uh, from an investment perspective, the residential mortgage-backed securities were obviously a major issue. They're not only a major issue for insurers, which are huge investors, they're a major issue for a lot of folks, banks and folks collateralize that, et cetera, et cetera. What we're seeing trend-wise, again, so we're in a low protracted, low interest rate environment. And because, again, as I said, insurers depend on credit, uh, on investment spread for their profitability, we have seen re what we call reach for yield. And where we've seen that, we've seen uh, a lot of growth in uh, triple B bonds, which are the lowest level of investment grade. So that has been really eye-opening to see uh, that ratio as a, and we always take this as an expression or a percentage of surplus, how that number has grown. So the lower end of investment grade has grown uh, really uh, pretty robustly. Um, the other plate, the other thing we've seen is growth in commercial um, mortgages. So mm -hmm. instead of bonds, the actual commercial mortgages, um, you know, this is an area that, that insurers have been involved with, especially life insurers for many, many years. A lot of, a lot of them are very good at it. They have their own teams that do this. Um, it's, it's obviously a great uh, uh, asset liability match for longer tail type products, uh, but we have seen growth in commercial mortgages being written. And we've also seen growth in alternative investments, and these are called Schedule BA investments on the statutory accounting blank. Um, and they consist of things like private equity and hedge funds and, you know, investments in energy type investments, et cetera, a lot, a lot of different at, uh, alternative investments. 
I think private equity hedge funds would be a couple of the larger ones that people would be familiar with. Um, while it's still not a large part of the balance sheet uh, investment portfolio of insurers, we have seen that grow as well. So I throw those three out there because you asked me what could be the next, I don't know, minefields, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I would just say in, in an economic downturn, you would expect to see some of the following. You'd expect to see the lower end of investment grade bonds uh, either become, you know, get into hopefully not serious credit problems, but, you know, honestly default, but more likely you'd see them drift down and become uh, lower investment grade, what we call fallen angels. Uh, so we obviously watch that very closely. Anything that's not investment grade bonds in a stressed environment would obviously have a greater risk of default. So we obviously are always watching for that. Uh, in an economic downturn, you would expect, again, that commercial uh, mortgages would get into some credit quality issues as well, and there'd be losses taken there. It's something that we also uh, watch. What we will say, however, is that back in 2008 and 2009, we were really surprised outside of the residential mortgage-backed securities I talked about, and that the incidence of certainly default on on something like a commercial mortgages was much, much less than we had anticipated. Um, You know, uh, even even some of the bond holdings outside of the the, the asset-backed securities and mortgage-backed securities that had some of the problems, you know, the incidence of default on some of the other bonds was not nearly what we would have expected in that type of environment. So it's, I guess what I'm saying is it's difficult to predict exactly what will happen in a stress environment. I think it depends very much on each individual insurer obviously has their own risk tolerance and investment strategy. Um, but I think those would be some of the broad, um, you know, the broad issues that we're looking at certainly, um, you know, in, in a stressed environment where equity markets uh, have a sharp downturn, you'd likely see some issues with hedge funds and equity, you know, uh, if folks have invested in private equity, et cetera. You know, the life insurance industry does not tend to invest a lot directly in uh, unaffiliated equities because they have the exposure on liability side through the variable products they're writing. So that doesn't necessarily tend to hit the industry as hard, but some of these other issues uh, could certainly come to pass and we'll just have to see. But again, but again, I like to stress the point that our model is set up almost our, our alert analyses are in themselves a stress test, right? Because uh, these are very, these are kind of surplus-based uh, analyses, which where the denominator in a lot of our ratios is surplus. So we're trying to measure if this comes to pass as inevitably will, how much surplus does a company have essentially to make up, to have that cushion to survive those types of, of investment losses. So it's very important, again, to, to look even today at what the, capitalization, whether on a risk-adjusted or uh, on an absolute basis for these companies are, and to try to work with the ones that are more financially solid, if it makes sense. Well, that, that makes perfect sense, and I think that's a reminder to those of us, you know, all across the industry, whether we're directly uh, client-facing or wholesaler or even an insurance company, that you have to take a look at more than one data point, uh, such as going beyond uh, Ambest is, you know, by far, I would say the best known rating agency in the insurance business is going beyond Ambest rating and thinking what goes into that rating, looking at other uh, financial strength rating services and something like the alert research and balancing all that out because it's not a simple question 
uh, of an insurance company's financial strength. And insurance companies are huge entities with a whole variety of financial components. Um, so, you know, this is just fascinating. Uh, so just to move out, um, I, I was curious is, you know, we talked about that you do, you know, you've got a lot of duties at Alert, uh, directing research staff, managing the IT initiatives, project development, writing research pieces, overseeing business development. That sounds like a lot for one day. Uh, how do you prioritize and juggle all those different uh, duties? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, it is a challenge. Uh, Alert is not a, ma a massive company, right? We're a nine-person company, so uh, people have to wear different hats. Obviously, we have some outsourced uh, support for software development and hardware, you know, like a lot of smaller companies will have. But, you know, I'd say that, uh, you know, I've been very fortunate in my career, one, to have two real, real great partners. We've been together for many years. We support each other nicely. Um, and, you know, I've had the, the secondary benefit of, of owning my own company, which kind of uh, makes you want to get up every day and go to work, right? It's, uh, you know, you, you're kind of... Uh, Everything you do, you're kind of doing, obviously, for the benefit of your partners and your employees as well, but also for yourself. So uh, there's that kind of internal drive, uh, essentially, behind that. Uh, but I would say, you know, I like the fact that I'm still, as are my two partners, we're, we're both analysts here. Obviously, we have a team of analysts as well. But keeping your hand in the analysis of these companies is extremely important. As I said, we're a service company, so we are out uh, certainly talking with our clients all the time and on the phone with people who are expert uh, in their respective fields. So we have to kind of have to be on our game and, and therefore we have to kind of keep our hand in the analysis as well. Um, so being an analyst obviously helps you when you're out selling and you're marketing because mm -hmm. you can obviously talk about everything that's going on with the industry. But it works the other way as well. I said having sold and, and marketed my firm, and my partner's firm for many years, uh, you know, you get very adept at listening and we always say all of our our good ideas honestly come from clients and prospects who say, hey, can you, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you, talk, you know, integrate this into your web portal, et cetera? So we're constantly listening and bringing ideas back as kind of the forward-facing salespeople of this organization that help strengthen the analytical side as well. So, you know, I would say I kind of like wearing all the hats. I think it makes us a, a much stronger company. Um, you know, it makes for a lot of work, but if you like what you do, it's not, uh, it's not painful. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, I think you hit on, uh, again, some really great points. I, and I think the most important one is that it's always important to remember that no matter where we are in the business world, is that it's always about the customer and pleasing the customer. Uh, that if the clients aren't happy with the product that you're providing, as sooner or later, you're going to run into an issue, whether you're an agent, a broker, you know, a, uh, you know, Hartford, State Farm, you're going to run into that issue. And, and I think it's interesting that you still touch base with your roots um, as an analyst, as well as that you're interfacing with clients. I think at a lot of firms, somebody goes into a senior management role, executive position, and they no longer interface with clients. And I think that's a huge mistake because then you no longer know firsthand what the clients are thinking about and that that's always going to be a separation on a business. You can't best serve your clients 
if you don't talk to them. Uh, so I, I, I think that's wonderful. And it's, you know, it's something that we all need to keep in mind as we go through our business. And uh, so as we've talked about, you've been doing this for a while, uh, a few years. Do you have any uh, funny, interesting stories that stick out that you'd like to share? The, uh, you know, having obviously uh, been in this business a long time, obviously involved a lot of travel and a lot of that travel has been with my partners. I think there's been lots of funny and interesting times, uh, certainly uh, a lot of times on the road. Um, I will say uh, outside of funny, I'd say probably my most interesting experience at Alert, uh, of, you know, of many over the years was on uh, September 16th of 2008. Uh, folks who were in the business uh, then will recognize that was the day after it became patently clear that uh, AIG was uh, facing some very serious problems. Um, they they were they did not get a buyout from a or a, uh, I guess a buy-in from uh, some third-party firm, and they they did need to get a bailout from the government. Um, that day, uh, my two partners and I literally sat in our respective offices, and the calls came in probably for ten straight hours, one after the other. Oh, wow. Get it. The level of panic in the industry at that point, because again, AIG was a, a very well-known firm, both on the life and the property casualty side, uh, was palpable. Um, one of the things that made the day interesting for us is because of the, the nature of our work, which is bottoms up, um, we kept reminding people when they call, uh, and these were largely producers calling on behalf of their insureds, <clears throat> with this fear being that, well, AIG is going under, which means our policy isn't going to be covered we kept reminding folks, who's your policy written with? And the answer would be, well, it's written with AIG. And we're like, no, it's not. Look in the declarations page of your policy. Mm -hmm. and you could see, you know, was in the PC world, someone like the Lexington Insurance Company or National Union or, you know, Sun America, whatever on the, on the uh, life side or American General, et cetera. And we said, okay, so what's the financial quality of that company? Well, we don't know. We just know the, we just know the whole company's in trouble and the ratings are under pressure. And we said, well, you do know. Look at the alert analysis for that period. And they were able to look and see, oh, yeah, it says here that the score shows that there are still well-solving companies. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we said, exactly. That's, that's a key here. You, you've written your policy with a statutory entity. That entity, that entity is still solvent. The insurance departments cannot go in, uh, sorry, the uh, parent cannot go in rather and take wholesale take the money out of the, the subsidiaries, uh, obviously without the approval of the insurance departments, which weren't going to let them do that anyway. So you're okay. And just to see everyone kind of calm down uh, mm -hmm. was very professionally gratifying for us because that's why we're in business. We're in business to help people understand exactly where their exposures are and to just take a deep breath in, in instances like that and, and kind of calm down. But it was a day that, you know, again, I don't think I'll ever forget just the intensity of it. And again, the ability to help is why you're in business, right? Back to your point earlier. Uh, and I think we really were able to help a lot that day. Well, that's great. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, my, my final question is, you know, what's your number one tip rule for success? I mean, you've built up a huge successful company over 20 years, you basically started from scratch with your partners uh, in an industry where there are some really established players. Um, Ambest has been around for well over 100 years. Uh, you know, what's, what do you think has been your top rule for success? Uh, what, what's made you so successful? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, we like it. We, in our, I'll call it our lunchroom, it's really a kitchenette. You know, people like to put up 
little sayings or, you know, snippets from articles they've read or, or books they've read. And there's a couple there that always uh, kind of stick with me. One is uh, attributed to Winston Churchill. I think he says, uh, a pessimist is, it sees a difficulty in every opportunity and, a, and an optimist sees the opportunity in every difficulty, right? So I always kind of keep that in mind. Uh, the other quote that I like is, is most of the important things in the world have been accomplished by people who kept on trying. The Churchill quote, I really think, speaks to um, kind of the correct attitude for success. And the second quote really speaks to the, to the right work ethic for success. So I think if you stay optimistic and you're willing to work hard and keep at it and not give up, I think it's really hard to fail, right? I think those are kind of two keys for success that I've, I've uh, applied in my life and, and continue to apply, and I, and I do think they work. Well, and I, I think those are great quotes to close with. Um, so, you know, as we close, um, where can people learn more about Alert Research? And we'll also be putting uh, a link to your website in, in the show notes. Uh, but how can they learn more about Alert Research? Yeah, certainly. Uh, it's obviously www.alertresearch.com, as you'll see from what you post. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, we are definitely approachable folks here at Alert. So if anyone is listening to this podcast and, and wants to talk to me directly or one of my two partners, we are always willing to do that. Uh, we're not prima donnas here. So if you want to reach out to me, I'm at david.paul, P-A-U-L, at alertresearch.com. And, you know, if you just want to chat about, about what we do and, and uh, to see if it would be of help in, in kind of what you do uh, in your day-to-day -day life, I'd be happy to do that. That'd be great. And a quick note for uh, the listeners out there, alert is spelled L-A-I-R-T. <laughs> uh, just uh, on that. And uh, as a closing note is, um, you know, I've known David for some years and uh, am somewhat familiar with the alert research. And it really is a different look um, at the insurance companies and their financial strength ratings. And adds a whole new dimension uh, to the insurance companies and uh, you know david thank you so much for coming on the get ready with tony stewart podcast and sharing so much about what alert research does where you see the insurance industry going and about the financial strengths uh of the insurance companies i mean this has been a fascinating thing so thank you again for joining me today well certainly thank you for having me and uh i enjoy the conversation as well Great. i look forward to uh, being in touch